This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title Christian Fundamentals, the subdivision of the second coming of Christ and a third division, the New Testament approach to this great and mighty subject. This is number two of this New Testament series and I want to, us to read together and if you will join us, uh, read together the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John. In our last meeting, we gave a survey of Matthew 24, and obviously it was not possible to deal with every detail that is asking for consideration in that one meeting. And also there are some at the meeting this evening who were not able to be with us last time, uh, the closing of the holiday season. So I'm going to ask you for the next few minutes, just a few minutes, to consider the general line of teaching, and then we'll go on with the new development. Matthew 24 arises out of the words of our Lord uh, when he said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. And in an earlier study, you will find that we have gone through the Old Testament references to the house of God and shown that they keep pace with the fortunes of Israel. I refer you to that if you haven't already heard it. And these disciples, when they heard the Lord's saying that there should not be one stone left upon another that should not be thrown down, they drew his attention to these stones of the building. And he said, oh no, there's desolation coming. And you remember uh, that when the house of God is destroyed, when you're in connection with the Israel economy, it meant there was a, re, uh, as it were, withdrawal of the divine favour. And when the house of God was restored, and the service was according to the law, then the divine favour was back again. So, here we have a, a period which is covered by the withdrawal of the divine favour from Israel. And although John 14 doesn't deal with any of the features of the second coming that we have in Matthew 24, it deals with one thing. I'm going away. And unless I send another comforter, you will be orphans, as the word is. And so we have an interval spanned by the ministry of the Spirit of God during the absence of the Son of God. But that is a, a part to be considered a little bit presently. Well, then you may remember uh, that he said to them, uh, they said to him, uh, tell us, when shall these things be? That's one question. What shall be the sign of thy coming? That's the second question. And the end of the world? That's the third question. And he answered them in inverse order. He first of all spoke about the end and then he spoke about the sign of the Son of Man and then he told them when it would be. Now the one thing I would like to be sure that you understand is that when they said the end of the world they used a special term that was fully understood by everybody in Israel. You need not be a very learned scholar to know when a holiday comes along not if you're anything like me. Nobody would need to have a textbook to know that August Bank Holiday fell on the first Monday of August, unless they're an extraordinary type of people. So these people were not exhibiting great learning, they used a very term that everybody knew. And in Exodus, you will discover that there were three feasts in the year that were obligatory upon Israel, and one of them, the Feast of the Ingathering, at the end of the year, was the very word that was used here, the Suntaliah. So this is the Harvest Festival of Israel. That's one of the titles of the second coming of Christ. It will be a time of trouble that will precede it. 
It will be a time of judgment when it comes. But for those who are the Lord's people at that time, it will be the ingathering, the harvest festival at the end of the age. Well, then there were other features that we canvassed, among others the question of when should it be? And did you know that it is a fruitful ground of speculation to try to count cycles and jubilees and pyramids and I don't know what are all brought in to prove that the second coming of Christ has taken place in about 20 different dates already in the past and if time goes on there'll be 20 different dates in the future. So remember that it's written in the scriptures that no man knoweth the hour. No man knoweth the day. But that doesn't mean to say that we've got to be blind to signs because the very same chapter that says you do not know the time says, but surely when you look at the fig tree and it begins to put forth its leaves, you say that summer is nigh. And also, it's, there is one period uh, dated in this 24th chapter. It says, immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sign of the Son of Man be seen in him. So there will be some who will go through that great tribulation. There's only one great tribulation which is greater than anyone that's ever been or ever will be, and that is to last three years and a half according to the prophecies, so that those who go through the great tribulation, they will know that when that ends, the end of the world will come and Christ will return. But you've got to pay the price for that knowledge. You've got to be up to your neck in trouble before you're able to be sure that that is so. Well, now I felt that this evening there were one or two features that needed to be expanded a little more, before we move on to the uh, Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of that period to deal with this great subject, another phase and another aspect of the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ can become a sort of a, uh, a theme uh, that can be harmful because it's such a, a great field of speculation. And in this very chapter, the very first answer that our Lord made was not when should it be, or what should the signs be, but here's his first answer, take heed that no man deceive you. And when that section ends, he says, then if any man shall say unto you, lo, here is Christ, or there believe it not, for there shall be arise false Christs and false prophets, and they shall deceive, if it were possible, the very elect. So we have got to watch our step, haven't we? that we do not father upon any part of Scripture some private interpretation about the second coming. But that doesn't mean to say it's not written for our learning if we'll only walk humbly with our God and ever seek to put into practice that great principle, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we have in this um, first prophecy of Matthew 24, the second coming of Christ as it pertains to the kingdom, the king and the people of the kingdom, that is the people of Israel. We've already seen in our earlier study that it is pegged down by a reference to Daniel, and other references make it so that you cannot possibly apply this phase of the second coming to the church, which is the body of Christ, without distorting and without ignoring the things which differ. Now before we go further, I would like to demonstrate that it is a, a worthwhile thing to remember the other injunction. I have started writing another book. Now, look, Mr. Canning's looking at me. Or Mrs. Canning will be. And I said, if I had another 50 years, 
Now, don't worry, friends, I'm not going to have another 50 years. If I had another 50 years, I believe I could occupy it just as fully with the other principle of interpretation, which instead of rightly dividing the word of truth, takes this line. The words which the Holy Ghost teaches comparing spiritual with spiritual. Because, you see, in nearly every case, we have to be lopsided. We have to stress, and we have had to stress, right division to such an extent, that we forget there's equally a balance to be remembered to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So perhaps somebody else would have to live another 50 years in order to batter away at that. But we'll take a hint. Now, because of time, uh, you will find in your private reading that Mark's account runs practically parallel with Matthew 24. It may not be quite so full, but it doesn't add anything at all. But if you'll turn to Luke's account, there are one or two things that I think we ought to add to our study of Matthew 24 before we feel we have done justice to it. Now, when you think of, of Luke's Gospel, here is a man who may have been a Gentile. He may not. There's a good deal of speculation either way. But we do know this, that he was Gentile in his attitude and he was the chosen companion of the Apostle Paul so that in Paul's last epistle, he writes these words, only Luke is with me. Well, when you read the Gospel according to Luke, you'll discover that where Matthew says kingdom, Luke says gospel or saviour. You wouldn't expect to find the parable of the prodigal son in Matthew, not if you knew anything. It's in Luke you find that. And most surely Matthew would never have given you a good Samaritan. It's Luke that does that. So you see, there's a, a Gentile tinge in Luke's Gospel. Now if you come to Luke 21, you'll see that it's there in this record, which is a transcript of the Matthew 24 prophecy, but approaching it from its own angle. I will read um, verse 22 and come to the passage in the next two verses. Verse 22, For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. Now you remember those strange words actually come in Matthew 24, so it's the same thing. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword, and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's the bit that Luke adds and nobody else does it in the New Testament. You see? He says, one of the things you've got to remember is that while the times of the Gentiles last, the heel of a conqueror or a Gentile ruler will be upon Jerusalem. Now isn't it extraordinary that it's still true? We have wondered and looked. We've seen Israel going back in droves. We have heard them claim to be a nation. I suppose you know that when you read in the newspaper Israeli with an I on the end, it's not just playing about with a word. That is a claim to be the nation of Israel. It's an abbreviation. But the I on the end is a genitive case. And they're saying, oh, we're not Israel, we're the nation of Israel. See? And yet... If you go through the streets of Jerusalem, you'll find barbed wire. And you'll find opposing forces. And there may be rifle shots across the street. Jerusalem, the very city of Israel, is still trodden down. And that will be so until the time of the end. 
And so I refer you without turning to the passage to Daniel the second chapter. There Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold, the first Gentile ruler appointed by God, is succeeded by the various kings that follow until we get to the time of the end when we get the ten toes indicated by the ten kings who shall reign together at the last time. And then he said, I saw a stone cut out without hands and it smote the image and it was practically ground to powder and the stone developed and filled the whole earth. Now then, you see, right to the very end of Gentile dominion, just at the time when the second coming of the Lord is imminent, the treading down goes on. There is no break. There is no interval. Now, if you've ever had before you the claim that the Scriptures teach there's a premillennial kingdom lasting somewhere around about 500 years of light and peace on the earth, you cannot get it into that vision. Right to the very end and the ten toes, you have the image and then only is it destroyed by the second coming of Christ. So there's one of the keys, where we can say, we look around us, and we say, well, Christ cannot have returned yet. Why? Well, the Jerusalem isn't free. It's one of the very features that you've got to remember the scriptures, it shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled, and then shall the sign of the Son of Man be seen in heaven. Now, when we come to John's Gospel, he has moved from this prophecy. He knew it. He heard it. Uh, but he wrote very much later when there was a very great indication that Israel were going to fail. Because you remember that it's in the Gospels, the early Gospels, the failure of Israel isn't at the beginning. You have to read some chapters before you begin to realise that these people are not accepting their king. But when you open the first chapter of John's Gospel, he came to his own and his own received him not. So that there is no prophecy of the second coming in the sense of Matthew 24 in John's Gospel. But when he took his own aside in chapters 13, 14, 15 and 16 and spoke particularly to them, he said, now I'm going away. But he says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And if I go away, I will come again. Now I ask a person who spiritualizes the second coming of Christ and says it's only in the hearts of the believers and that sort of teaching. Did Christ go away? He did. Well, he says, I'll come again. And when we come to the Acts of the Apostles, we shall find it more explicit. This same Jesus, whom we have seen go into heaven, shall so come in like manner. Surely it cannot be more definite. So now we've got this other aspect, a very quietening, blessed aspect. Let not your heart be troubled, comes twice over. And if you have any wonder how you approach a structure, well surely if you see, let not your heart be troubled, come twice in it, you'll say, well there's the two first members anyhow, if I can't fill the rest in, but it's there. So now we've just skimmed of that phase of the teaching, suggesting that it would be wise for us, whenever we read the scriptures, to put into practice these two principles. First of all, rightly to divide the word of truth and see that Matthew 24 belongs to the kingdom and its gospel preaching and its reference to all nations and so on. And then, wherever there have been words used by the Holy Ghost to make sure that you compare spiritual things with spiritual and so strike a happy balance. Well, now, shall we come back to Matthew 24 
and look at one or two other features that I think were necessary before we pass on. You will find quite a number of times the word all nations come in this uh, story. And I think that it would be wise if we were to remember that that was an echo from Old Testament passages. Uh, suppose we look back just to Psalm 72. Psalm 72. And you remember that Psalm 72 is concerning the son David speaking about the reign of his greater son. At the end of Psalm 72, he says, The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Not meaning to say that he didn't pray anymore, uh, but they reached their consummation in this reign of his son. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness. You know how it goes. And then... It says, verse uh, 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him, all nations shall serve him. This is the kingdom emphasis. All nations shall serve him. And again, in um, verse 19, we read these words. Oh, verse 17, His name shall endure forever, his name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him, all nations shall call him blessed. All nations. Now, I've got a whole string of passages that you could turn to, but I don't want to do all the work for you, do I? Because you're growing up, you're not babes, you're Bereans. That's one. You'll find in the Old Testament one or two references in the prophets which make it seem possible that when it speaks about all nations in this prophecy, it's carrying on the same idea. So, should we now look at Matthew 24, verse 9. Then... Shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Still the same company, all nations. And then again, in verse 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. And if you turn to chapter 25, verse 32, Verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then should he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him should be gathered all nations in that judgment of the nations. And then again you remember at the close of this gospel in chapter 28 we have the great commission. Verse 19, go ye therefore and teach all nations, make disciples as the word is, all nations, and there isn't a single reference in this passage to preaching the gospel. In spite of the fact that it's called the Great Commission, and maybe the marching orders for a missionary effort, go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and though I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. All nations. And then, in Matthew 24, it goes on to say, in verse 14, that this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom, doesn't say, and the gospel shall be preached to all nations, but it says, this gospel of the kingdom. Some gospel of the kingdom that these men knew all about. Well, if you look at the earlier chapter where they were sent out to preach, our Saviour in chapter 4 announced in his first proclamation, 
Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in the tenth chapter of Matthew, he chose these twelve, verse five, and he told them not to go into the way of the Gentiles. So how a person can believe the gospel according to Matthew as a Gentile and say now, this is all for us, when it explicitly says, well, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, it's beyond understanding, but there it is. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom was accompanied with signs. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out devils, freely you have received, freely give. There was a company of believers in America particularly that had a great following that used to quote a part of Matthew 10 in their public service as a part of, as if they're sort of marching orders. And as most of these excitable meetings never opened their Bible, nobody seemed to be conscious that they, they said this. And as you go, preach saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, freely ye have received, freely give. They left out, raise the dead. Although, of course, some claim to do even that, but that was always left out in that particular confession. So, we mustn't play about as it were with these. This was a commission to preach. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. By whom? Well, most, as far as we can see, by those who belong to that calling. You and I are not sent by the Lord to preach the gospel of the kingdom. We are commissioned, if we have got any commission at all, of the things that we have heard in many witnesses, said Paul to Timothy, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also, uh, have a form of sound words which you have heard of me. And Paul didn't preach this kingdom. He preached, of course, the kingdom of God's dear son. We can't be outside the sovereignty of God, uh, whatever calling it may be. But the gospel of the grace of God and justification by faith, which you won't find in Matthew's gospel, was the commission that we received. So, while we can't interfere with other people's liberties and conscience, uh, they may feel that they're uh, called to preach this gospel of the kingdom and we must let them be, perhaps. At the same time, so far as we're concerned, we preach the grace of God that bringeth salvation, not by works, but by faith to the glory of God. But that, of course, is another subject. Well then, uh, one word that perhaps needs a bit more uh, emphasis than I gave last time is in verse 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. There are those who are so constituted that if they saw a miracle worked, it will be a proof that God was present. Well, that isn't true. I won't turn to passages, I'll quote them. And if I misquote them, it's because they're being quoted by memory. But you remember Moses was sent to Egypt, and he was told to do certain things, and demonstrate that he was sent from God. And then the magicians of Egypt came up, and they did some things. They didn't do all. Oh, they said, that's Peter, that's the finger of God. But some things they did. So you've got to be prepared to find that the evil one, the God of this age, that mighty fallen spirit, he's not about working miracles and can do them. Never say, oh, they're all frauds. There's trickery about it. No, no. There were miracles wrought to further evil, just as miracles were wrought to further good. And then if you come to the New Testament, 
in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you get the anti-Christian beast there, and the prophet who works miracles to, to uh, induce the whole mankind to worship him, and three words are used, signs and wonders and miracles, but there's a word false added to them. But those signs and wonders and miracles are the very same words used of Christ and his apostles. So that a miracle by itself is to be questioned. If it's backed by the word of God and doesn't run counter to the glorious work and witness of our Saviour, then it may be accepted as a proof. But so far as our calling is concerned, which doesn't come in Matthew 24, I think it's written across our calling from Ephesians to the end of 2 Timothy, we walk by faith and not by sight. We have a witness, but it's within. And all these spectacular signs and wonders that accompanied the early church at the very beginning have been withdrawn. But that is another subject, of course, which could be well developed. Uh, but you do remember the challenging passage at the end of Mark's Gospel, these signs shall follow them to believe. Well, if that's the case, there's every possibility that nobody in this meeting this evening has got any sign that they're a believer at all. Taking up serpents and drinking poison and raising the dead and healing the sick, these signs shall follow. They did, friends. But there came a time when they ceased. And that belongs to our present walk and witness. Well then, with regard to the, to the uh, relationship with Old Testament prophecy, uh, we must go for a moment or two once more to the prophecy of Daniel. In Matthew 24, it says, verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And somebody might say, yes, you can read it many times and then fail to understand. We cannot hope to be able to lay out and deal specifically with all the intricacies of such a prophecy of Daniel. There come a time when that prophecy which he himself said was sealed, seal up the words to the time of the end. We've got a general idea in Daniel what's coming, but when the time of the end comes, the very circumstances of the times will illuminate cryptic references that we may have to pass by. But I think we must go back to Daniel the ninth chapter, if it's only just to give a word or two with regard to the way in which it bears upon the time of the second coming of Christ as indicated in this Matthew 24. Now first of all we notice in Daniel the ninth chapter that he, a prophet himself, was not one of those persons that was so self-contained that he never referred to the word of God at his disposal. He, a prophet, was reading the prophet Jeremiah, you see, in verse 2. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And you know that man believed it. He said, Jeremiah was told by God that, it, that this desolation would last 70 years. And he ran his mind over, he said, why are the 70 years are nearly up? So he believed it. And he started praying. And acknowledging. And confessing. And pleading with God. That this desolation should be removed. Verse 16, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, 
I beseech thee that thine anger and thy fury be turned away from thy city, Jerusalem, thy holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. And while he was praying, it says, verse 23, oh, verse 21, and while I was speaking in prayer, even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee. For thou art greatly beloved, therefore understand the matter, and consider the vision. And now he goes off onto one of the most intricate and difficult passages in prophecy. Seventy weeks. If you look at chapter 10, verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. And the margin says, uh, three weeks, full weeks mean weeks of days. And in this same chapter, you will find in verse 13, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. So if you didn't know how many days there were in three weeks, it added it up for you and says twenty-one. So in chapter 10 we are dealing just with an ordinary day of the week. 21 days in three weeks. But when you're dealing with the word weeks in Daniel the ninth chapter, it's utterly impossible there to make those just ordinary weeks. Now it's not usual in our ordinary language to speak of a week apart from seven days. I don't know as I know any literature, anybody who would expect to be understood if he used the word week for say seven of anything, fancy going into a grocer's and saying you want a week of oranges or something. Well, you think you're going on a diet and that's all you're going to have for, for a whole seven days. You see, but in the Hebrew, the word week means seven of anything. So, in Daniel the 10th chapter, it's a week of days. We don't have to say a week of days because it's the only week we know. So he says now, seventy-sevens. Just change the word to the word seven as it should be. Daniel, you've been reading the prophecy of Jeremiah. And there you read that 70 years was going to be fulfilled in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now I've come to tell you that in a period of 70 times 7, the whole thing's going to be finished. See what's coming. 77s are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. All this is to do with the end, isn't it? To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision of prophecy, to anoint the most holy. Those are the things that are yet to come at the close of this age. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall even in troublous times. Now you notice the angel goes out of his way to divide this portion up into two. And most commentators, they help the angel out of his difficulty and they say, well, he says, seven weeks. And then he says, three score and two weeks. So we'll just put it down as, what is it, 79 weeks. Is that right? You see? Well, surely the angel could have said that straight off. Isn't it wise for us to say, if he went to the trouble to divide that period up into two portions... What are we doing to smudging it all together? 
So, what did it mean? Now, you go into the story of the rebuilding of Jerusalem under Nehemiah and Ezra, and you'll find that it took 49 years for the building of the city and getting it all ready. Well, until the city was built and the gates could be shut, the sovereignty of Jerusalem was challengeable. So that he said, now look, there's going to be a period of 49 years yet. Don't start dating your prophecy until you get to the end of the 49 years. Now then, you've got now from the end of the 49 years to the Messiah the Prince, and after the three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. You see? So, from the time when that prophecy was uttered, you've got 49 years and the remainder of the years right to the time when Christ came, suffered and died. But instead of only having one week left, as in the ordinary way you would, you've got quite a number. And so you've got enough to carry you right through the Acts of the Apostles. And when you've got to the end of the Acts of the Apostles, you've got enough left to complete the book of the Revelation. And every one of those weeks is following the history of Israel. And they only omitted when Israel are not God's people, no army. Now, you've seen this chart before. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you have no acquaintance with Daniel the ninth chapter, I would advise you to get the tape recordings of the whole prophecy and you'll get it set out a bit more plainer than I can do in a few minutes. I feel a, bit, a little bit like one of your stores in America when they advertised if you want impossibilities, we'll do it immediately. But if you want a miracle wrought, it might take a little time. You see, that's how we're getting with these subjects sometimes. Well now, at the bottom of this chart you will see a suggestion, if it's visible to you, of a rather rough sort of track. And then a straight road, and then a cross, and then a period, and then the Acts 28, and then the final. It's as though you asked your direction of somebody when you were out with your car. And the person you asked was one of these local inhabitants, and uh, instead of telling you straight off that it was so many miles, he said, oh, it'd be seven miles, and it'd be 52 miles. Or you say, come on, let's find somebody else. But after you've bumped along seven miles, you come out onto a very fine road, he said, ah, he, he meant what he said. He meant what he said, that this is to be divided into two parts. So when you're looking at Daniel 9, remember, in all your computations, go on to the finish of the building of the wall, then start your computation. And if you haven't seen the little chart that we have in the prophetic analysis or elsewhere, well, I commend you to consider it because it's so vital. Well, here we have this prophecy. And after three score and two weeks, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. Actually, literally, he shall have nothing. And I remember speaking before on this, and I'll tell you again, that down here, not far from here, Petticoat Lane, I was once surrounded by a crowd as big as the, watching the Lord Mayor's show, I should think. It was a bit of a venture to stand there by yourself and ask him for trouble, of course. Uh, but uh, I quoted this passage and I was challenged by a Jew. He said, ah, that's in your Protestant Bible. So I said, well, I'm only a Gentile and I'm only just struggling with learning Hebrew. Uh, have you got a Hebrew Bible? He said, yes. I said, where is it? He said, I got it at home. So I said to the crowd, should we wait? They said, yes. So back came this little old Jew with a Bible nearly as big as himself. 
And he opened it out. I said, now you read to the crowd what it says in Daniel 9.26. And he read, Messiah should be cut off and have nothing. And he looked at me and some looked at me. He said, I've never read that before. And then I said, as long as you let your rabbi dictate to you what parts you shall read and what parts you mustn't read, you never will read Daniel 9. You never will, will read Isaiah 53. That's, the, that's, as it were, stopping you. That's the veil that's being put over your heart. You see, they were looking for a triumphant victor who should liberate them rather from the dominion of Rome than from the dominion of sin. And so they rejected their king. But always remember that Christ was not only a king. He was a king priest. And it was the priestly side that touched their sins that prevented them accepting him. They would have accepted him right enough to deliver them from taxation from Rome. But he was going to deliver them from something deeper. And so it has to wait. Well then there are other features. That again of course I must leave to speak for itself. Because there's too much to expect anyone to do except give a few hints. We come back to Matthew 24. And it gives you a word there that could take, take us far. Among other things, the Lord says in verse 37, But as the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Uh, but we must remember that our Lord knew what the days of Noah were like. But he doesn't say here that they were the most wicked people. He doesn't speak about the sons of God and the daughters of men and the giants that were in the earth and they were such an abominable people that they had to be destroyed by a flood. He could have said, but he picks out something which belongs to all time, not merely to the days of Noah. It belongs even to us, who are looking for another aspect of the coming of Christ. And that is to be ready, to be waiting, to be watching. So shall we just notice? For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. He doesn't say they were getting drunk and they were committing adultery. No, he said they were just living ordinary lives. Which is, I sure of you ought to live ordinary lives. No, friends, we ought to live extraordinary lives. If we are a redeemed people, we should live, as Titus puts it, live looking for that blessed hope. It should cover our lives. It should modify our ideas. It should help us to put up with them with many things that otherwise we'd be starting leading revolutions and rebellions because we belong to a higher calling. So you see, you can slip into an easygoing way and miss something. So he said, you see, they knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. The, the conclusion is in verse 42, Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Watch therefore. And you remember how watching and praying are linked together. And here is one of the occasions. Well now from this, from this time, Matthew 24, goes on all the way through Matthew 25 with regard to responsible stewardship. It ceases to tell you anything about signs and wonders and miracles and stars falling and heaven departing like a scroll and all those things and impinges upon the stewardship of those who are left behind. And while you and I may not be the stewards of the truth of the the kingdom, nevertheless we may be stewards of a most wonderful truth. 
And inasmuch as we are waiting for the Son of God to fulfill all our hopes, whether he's coming or whether we are going, so the truth which is emphasized here can be given a place in our hearts. So when you come to Matthew 25, although it's a separate chapter in our gospel, it's the same, it's the same prophecy on the mountain. And it starts with the word then. The English word then has to do justice for more meanings than the meaning of time. There are two words, now and then, that mean time. But if I say, now then, well, I don't know what I'm talking about with it to do with time, because that's mixed it up, hasn't it? But it, that, it's not a casual reference of saying, oh, then shall the kingdom of heaven. No, it's then. This is one of the answers. Go back, you see. When shall these things be? Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto, see? Now, of course, when it says the kingdom of heaven, it means the condition in which that kingdom of heaven has been, uh, has been uh, led by circumstances, by failure. The parables of Matthew 13 are the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. The mystery element about it. The leaven that's hidden. The evil that's sown in the field. And so he says, you see, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like this. This is the aspect of it. And then he refers to that which was common knowledge to them of the... Uh, uh, a wedding and the things that were done he focuses attention upon these virgins who were waiting and the, the pith of the matter is not to try to invest the lamps with a meaning and the oil with a meaning and the virgin with a meaning but to see that the point is verse 13 he answered and said verily I say unto you I know you not watch therefore for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the son of man cometh so he picks up the very words, almost, of verse 42 of the preceding chapter. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. So the virgins are still a part of the story. But now we're not finished. For the kingdom of heaven is, is as a man travelling into a far country. If you'll read Luke's gospel, he adds a little bit. He says the kingdom of heaven, or whatever the equivalent is, is like a man who went into a far country to receive a kingdom and to return. There's the whole story. The rejected king, he goes away, he comes back with all the power behind him of the purpose of God to be king of kings and lord of lords. So it says here, the kingdom of heaven is as a man travelling into a far country and called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. He gave one five talents, he gave another one two he gave another one, one. And then there was a reckoning. Now, if you were to turn aside from the study of uh, the prophecies, and we were looking at the parables of Matthew, we should discover that the first portion of Matthew has only one group of parables. They are the parables of Matthew 13. The sower and the tares and all that, you see. And then, after the uh, transition... We've got another group of parables altogether. The parables that come in the second half of Matthew are all to do with servants, vine dressers, attendants at weddings, and those who are responsible for a talent that's been entrusted to them. So that the first parable of the new series is an unforgiving servant when the king would take reckoning with his servants. Reckoning. And one of the last parables of the series is he reckons with his servants. He is the reckoning again. The Lord brings, uh, brings his servants before them and reckons with them. 
And then you discover that the same commendation was given to the one who had two talents and made two, as the one who had five talents, who made five. And you could continue and say, and surely, if the one who had one talent had produced one talent. My arithmetic's a bit groggy, I know, but I have a feeling that if if one produces one, and two produces two, and five produces five, somehow I'd risk it and say they're all the same percentage. Any comments on that? Well then you see, don't you see, some of us sit back and envy somebody who has got five talents. Well, I could sit back and think of the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle, he was a prophet, he was an evangelist, he was a pastor, he was a teacher. He got the whole lot. But oh, what a responsibility that man had, and what grace he needed to be able to lay at the feet of his Lord five corresponding talents at the end to show what he'd done with it. And the man or the woman who's in biggest danger is not the one who's got five talents, or even the one who had two, but the one who got just one. You know, we all say, oh, I couldn't do that. I'm not much use. And you sit there and you bury your talent in the earth when every single one of them is needed. If you were with us on the Sunday morning when we were dealing with Ephesians, we were dealing with the three measures in Ephesians chapter 4. Three measures. But unto each one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He doesn't expect one who's got one talent to produce two or five. He knows the measure of the gift he's given you. And in the 16th verse, it's each part, every member doing its part, however insignificant, however poor, however obscure it may be. We mustn't think that because we haven't got spectacular gifts that we've got nothing we can do in the name of the Lord and for his glory. So, while this has nothing to do here in Matthew 25 with the church of the one body in the mystery, the question of service and responsibility runs right through to a large extent of very parallel lines. Well then, after the, um, after the talents are dealt with, we have that passage in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory, the uh, nations are going to be judged. But in what way are they going to be judged? This is not the general judgment, this is not the great day of judgment, this is the judgment of nations, just the same as we read about nations before, and they're divided as a sheep divides, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. So here we have the two flocks. The nations considered. Now what constitutes the difference? Well, the sheep nations, they are said to be blessed. They inherit the kingdom. And the reason is, they visited the Lord when he was in prison. Or they gave him food when he was hungry. But they said to him, When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, or clothed thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren. Now the brethren of the Lord in Matthew are not members of the body of Christ. They are his people Israel. They are his brethren. Inasmuch as you of the nations, in the time of tribulation, and in any measure helped these people, you did it unto me. And then to the others he says, Depart from me, ye cursed. Well, when I said, when saw we thee hungered, when saw we thee and didn't visit thee. Well, he says, you didn't do it to my brethren. Now, here's the problem of this passage. Those 
who were kind to Israel in that day which is coming, will inherit everlasting life. And those who were not kind to Israel will suffer eternal punishment. The only occurrence of the word eternal punishment in the whole Bible is in Matthew 25. And I feel that it would be consistent if you lift that word eternal punishment out to apply to everybody and anybody at any time, you ought also to lift out everlasting life from the same passage and say, friend, you know what you've got to do to get everlasting life? Visit somebody in prison. And don't even know that they're doing it for the Lord. That's what it says. But of course I know I'm exaggerating, but see? There is a point for you to ponder. It's one of those things which is in the sort of balance. It may or may not be applicable. But the Lord used the word punishment here, a very peculiar word. It's not distributed all over the scriptures. And in the ordinary usage of the word among the Greek-speaking people, this word kalasis meant to prune a tree. Now, if I were a tree, I dare say I would see the man coming along and I shouldn't like the bits that are going to be clipped off. But ultimately, the pruned tree is benefited. It produces fruit. And there's a possibility that the nations that are kept outside of the kingdom, you know, there are those who go to the uttermost parts of the earth, and instead of being of the light and glory of the then blessed people and blessed Jerusalem, they're outside, and they'll be learning there by that dreadful process of uh, age-abiding pruning, that which they never learned otherwise. I'm only saying it might be so. So here we have now another attempt, and a poor attempt possibly, to let Matthew 24 speak to us concerning this great event that must take place. Surely if we know nothing else and we can see nothing else, there's one thing we can say and see. The head that once was crowned with thorns is, or will be, in that blessed day, crowned with glory. And surely that should help us to realise that it's not possible for us to be indifferent to the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. For without that second coming, his work would never be brought to a consummation. His prophecy would never be fulfilled. God's purpose in Israel, and God's purpose for the ages, and God's purpose even in the heavens, would still be marking time and waiting. But God will perform his promises. He will keep his word. And a time will come when the church of the one body will be manifested with Christ in glory. A time will come when a certain group will meet the Lord in the air. A time will come when some of the people will look upon him whom they pierced and mourned for him and see his feet in that day stand upon the Mount of Olives. All these things are awaiting us in future studies. But I pray that we may never miss the practical elements that creep in occasionally because all scripture has been given not to make us second-rate prophets, but to lead us to see both our need of a saviour and an endeavour by the mercy of God to walk with him during this pilgrimage.